Welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and as always, I'm humbled and honored to have you tuning into this podcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review Living in This Queer Body on Apple Podcasts. It would really mean a lot to me. Also, if you haven't already, head over to livinginthisqueerbody.com to sign up for my email newsletter. I am very excited to announce that registration will open soon for my beloved three-month Embodied Testimony Program Intensive. If you are interested in joining the waitlist for registration, please email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com. All the links for um, this show and how to reach me will be in the show notes. So email me if you're interested in it. So here's a little description of embodied testimony this time around. Embodied testimony is a trauma-informed, queer-affirming, mindfulness-oriented, program intensive that helps you and us together to explore the causes of body discomfort and pain, shame, grief, struggles with boundaries, disordered eating, body dysmorphia, anxiety, uncertainty about decision-making, how to maintain a sustainable creative practice, intimacy, family or partner conflict, and much more. In this particular iteration of Embodied Testimony, we will focus our sessions and readings and journal prompts on topics that unearth aspects of what it means to grow up as a parentified child and how that experience lives in our bodies as adults. If you don't know what it means to grow up as a parentified child, I encourage you to do some research and see if it resonates for you. We could also title this group Overcoming Perfectionism, Learning to Let Go, You Have a Choice in These Matters, Overcoming Fantasies of Changing People, or, and not limited to, Surviving a Narcissist. So that's a little flavor of what this iteration of Embodied Testimony might focus on. The program intensive is aimed at facilitating connection with other queer people, providing opportunities to witness the felt experiences and perspectives of other group participants, which in turn will help you to experience your own personal struggles or pain points in a different light. Embodied Testimony will begin December 5th of 2021. And we will meet in an intimate group via Zoom for six sessions on Sundays. My job will be to hold space, facilitate conversation and exploration in a semi-structured way. Each meeting will follow a theme related to the embodied experience of growing up with an emotionally immature or traumatized caregiver. 
I will also provide videos and journal prompts as well as resources between meetings to keep the material alive. During the three months, you will actively work via journal and other generative or creative projects with the material that emerges for you during this intensive. For example, the last embodied testimony cohort made a collaborative zine and shared tons of resources and commiseration with one another on our Slack channel. There are also opportunities to engage in one-on-one -on -one sessions with me to explore what is coming up for you during the program. At the end of this experience, I hope you'll feel connected to an enlivening community. You'll know much more about how to listen to your body and its narratives. Again, if you're interested in joining the waitlist for registration, please email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com, and that will ensure that you have um, first dibs on registering for this uh, relatively small intimate group. And there will be more information on my website soon enough. Okay, so one more thing, and then on to my talk with Nicole J. Georges. I recently discovered the podcast Uninvisible Pod. I stumbled upon it actually in one of these days uh, during recovery from a recent surgery, which is what I'm kind of navigating right now. I wanted to listen to other people talk about chronic illness and how it's hard sometimes. I'm really glad I found this podcast and I asked Lauren, the podcast host, to introduce the podcast to you and here's what she has to say. Uninvisible Pod is an award-winning podcast about invisible conditions and chronic invisible illness featuring interviews with survivors, their loved ones, advocates, and experts in varied healing modalities. Hosted by Laura Friedman, an activist and patient advocate who lives with Hashimoto's disease, multiple sleep disorders, depression, and anxiety. Uninvisible uncovers real stories of survival and humanity, complete with laughter. In truth and with candor, Lauren and her guests offer solutions and challenge the world to change. Lauren's latest episode is an interview with Hyperacusis Awareness founder, Gemma Tiffany, a remarkable teenager who has devoted her life not only to having her rare and disabling condition, one that causes physical pain and reaction to everyday sounds, recognized as such, but also raising awareness and encouraging inclusion. There are over 130 episodes like this at Uninvisible pod.com or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can also find Lauren and the podcast at uninvisible pod at on Instagram. Okay. So now onto the show, Nicole J. Georges is a graphic novelist and podcaster from Portland, Oregon. Nicole's podcast, Relative Fiction, adapted from her award-winning graphic memoir, Calling Dr. Laura, is out now and is wonderful. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. She's also the author of Fetch, How a Bad Dog Brought Me Home, and the queer arts and vegan food review podcast, Sagittarian Matters. 
In this episode, Nicole and I cover topics ranging from punk righteousness, drawing comics, family secrets, podcasting, 12-step programs, chosen queer family, and copresis, and making space for gentleness. Nicole makes the astute observation that to be an adult, maybe, is to be less fragmented. I urge you to check out all of Nicole's work. She is prolific and funny and powerfully insightful. Since recording this episode, I listened to every single episode of the Relative Fiction Podcast, and I must say, if you're interested in complicated families, queerness, attachment styles, intergenerational trauma transmission, this podcast has that and more, so definitely check it out. Thanks so much for listening, and on to my interview with Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And based on our pre-recorded uh, beginning of our conversation, it seems like there's a lot that we have to talk about and a lot we have in common. Um, I Thank you for having me. Yeah. I typically start each episode with a question and you can, you really can take this wherever and however you wants. Um, but I like to ask folks uh, what your earliest memory is of learning about what it meant to be in a body or any messaging you you remember getting about being in a body. Well, I, I was thinking about this. I, I had a feeling you were going to ask me this. So I was trying to think about, you know, it, it's a combination of fun and pain and shame. So I think my first memory, you know, I, I have some like, I think uh, some erased tape of me having like horrible dental trauma as a kid because my teeth all rotted out mm. when I was a toddler and I had to get them like ground down. And there's always family stories about me having to get strapped down and biting the dentist. Um, I don't remember that. I Probably do good. remember a friend down the street who showed me how funny it could be to flash somebody our genitals. She oh. was like, look at this. And she kind of like pulled up her vagina and I was like, ha, ha. and we were running around the neighborhood <laughs> flashing our genitals at each other. And then when I, and I was like, this is so fun. This is the best joke. I can't wait to show my older sisters. And then immediately that was, you know, <laughs> shut down. <laughs> it was shut down as you can't do You can't do it. was just like, a no. it was like a no conversation. You can't do that. Mm. So that was, that was okay. Um, and I also, um, so that I was like, I don't understand why they don't think that's funny. I can't believe mm-hmm. I got in trouble for this. It was an incredible joke. Totally. Uh, maybe I'd still be running around doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also, I remember I was, uh, I had two things going on at once. One was I had horrible, horrible stomach problems mm-hmm. ever since I was very young. Like I mean, I reverted from potty training when I was probably like four or three or four or something after like a traumatizing summer Mm -hmm. um, being stored with relatives as a toddler. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that plagued me and followed me, which we can talk about, but that plagued me and followed me for a long time. And I was told it was 
my fault. I had this, it was like, I had this like moral failing of, I just had this thing, which, you know, from amateur Googling is encopresis, which is basically like mm-hmm. kids getting so constipated, holding it in, holding their poop in, getting so constipated that it gets so big and dry and hard that it's like very painful. And so then it will come out, you know, it's coming out one way or another. And it just will just be like a lot of soiling. But in my case, it would get so bad. I'd have to go to the hospital. Mm. Like I just couldn't walk sometimes. Mm-hmm. And then that whole thing was like, if you just went to the bathroom, this wouldn't happen. Um, and that was essentially the help I got with it. Mm. And the other thing was I was a chronic masturbator. So anything, everything. And I remember my sisters catching me and being like, what are you doing? And I was, I was like rubbing on the side of something. And I was like, I'm, I'm doing my exercises. I was just like, think quick. What do I tell them? And they're like, we'll just keep the door closed when you're doing your exercises. Mm. So I wasn't shamed out of that. Actually, the most shame came from like my intense medical psychological issues, not mm-hmm. from my being like a little pervert hmm. or my sexuality as, you know. Right. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I, yeah, it's like the, do you think that's partially because of the, the feedback of your, your siblings, like that, they, I mean, there was some shaming of you <laughs> exposing yourself publicly, <laughs> um, maybe protective, you know, who knows? Um, but, but what do you think, what do you think that was about? I mean, was that something, was sexuality something that was kind of maybe modeled in a, or in a, I don't know, more quote unquote acceptable way or, talked about um or was it just what do you think what do you make of that kind of difference of reaction i guess of the different things that were kind of activated in your body um at that time hmm. well as far as the input i got from my sisters so my my sisters basically raised me up until they went to college they're 10 and 12 years older than me okay. so when i was born People would give them dirty looks in the grocery store because they thought they were there. I was their child. Mm. My mm-hmm. sister was like 13 and, you know, taking care of me. Um, so I think I grew up in a hyper sexualized household from what was going on with my mom dating at the time. Mm. And then my sisters were kind of we were all kind of turned in a certain way prudish in reaction to that. Mm-hmm. But I think that also my sisters handled like, especially catching me masturbating when I was like four, they handled it in such a, I feel like it was such an elegant, graceful way yeah. of not shaming me and just yeah. being like, I don't want to see that. <laughs> right. Like it, it was like, maybe that's not for me to see, but you do you. And yeah. I, I appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really, that sounds that sounds really supportive in a way that, you know, probably a kind of more adult uh, figure would not. um, It sounds like you did not have that experience around other things from the adults in your life. Um, There was a lot of blaming and shaming um, of you and the kind of disruptive way that your body was processing things that were happening in your your childhood and in your body. Yeah. And, you know, as an adult looking that up, 
Like just like when I worked on my first book, Calling Dr. Laura, I was like, oh my gosh, I got I have a contract with a huge publisher and I'm going to do my very best I can do. And like, to me, the very best, since it was a memoir, was mining my most shameful, embarrassing experience. Because <laughs> I was like, I think that that, I just like, I just feel like I need to go to a place that feels really uncomfortable for me. Because mm. I believe that kind of, you know, no tears for the writer, no tears for the reader. And I just, I didn't know why I wanted to put that part about my stomach issues in the book, but I just mm-hmm. knew it belonged there. Yeah. And I, but as soon as I was Googling it, like encopresis or like this being such a documented, I don't know if it's common, but it seemed common enough that there's like support groups on Facebook and, yeah. you know, like highly documented, like psychological findings and like theories and stuff. And I just, yep. I couldn't believe how common it was and how very specific it felt and uncommon it felt mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in my house. Like it wasn't a psychological thing. It was like created as, you know, there's this physical thing and you're in charge of it. And you're kind of just being stubborn. Right. Right. And what do you think? I mean, now, what do you make of, what do you think of that? What was happening for you? I mean, I guess that brings us to kind of to the, a bit to the, the kind of theme around your project, um, your newer project around family secrets. And so maybe we can talk about that or we can also talk about what you're kind of piecing together. It sounds like there's a kind of piecing together of your your earlier life that, um, you know, you've been doing for a while. Yeah, it's it's so hard having to piece together things over. I mean, I've been in therapy for like 20 years mm-hmm. and I'm still having realizations. I'll, I'm 40 years old. I'm still having aha moments. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which feels, I mean, I feel like it feels like when I, like when I tell teenagers that they're going to have zits until they have wrinkles and have a zit inside <laughs> of a wrinkle. I feel like that's like I'm some like the ghost of Christmas past going to me and being like, you're going to keep having these therapeutic realizations. Your whole, it doesn't end. You don't graduate. You don't. I know. Speaking as a therapist, I really, and a patient, <laughs> a therapist and a patient, I can fully relate to that. Yeah. There's no, there's no ultimate resolution. Um, and it, and it also sounds like just to, to note this, you, you know, there, there was the kind of mining for, for meaning at a point, but also you seem to have a genuine curiosity and interest in kind of, and probably need too. I mean, I, I, I'd be interested in, in sort of what the need was to make sense of some of these bewildering earlier experiences. Oftentimes, I think it's, it is secret family secrets or shame that prevents us from kind of being able to tell a story of our lives or tell a story of our bodies that is coherent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's hard. It's, it's not accessible to some people um, who've experienced certain forms of trauma. Um, so I think that seems like that's part of it um, for you. It's, it's so big because on, on one hand, so I don't have like a, financially, I don't have a safety net. Mm. And so I kind of just signed on to do, so let me back up. So when I, was 22 or 23, just for backstory, a psychic told me my dad was alive 
when I had been told he was dead my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was true. It was true. And my family was kind of just waiting for me to figure it out, but I was never going to figure it out. Up mm-hmm. until that point, I just, you know, I knew that my mom had some problems and that the way I grew up was not a normal way to grow up. Like I knew that from going to therapy, mm-hmm. but I didn't question the dad thing. I didn't question any of that stuff. And as soon as I asked, this whole thing cracked open and like my sisters had mental breakdowns and were like, we're so sorry. I've been carrying the guilt of this for years of going to therapy. Like Mm. everybody, everybody started, you know, everything started melting down. Like the dollhouse started breaking up or I don't know how to describe it, Mm -hmm. but it it's odd because I was sent on this quest. I mentioned the money thing. I was sent on this quest because to investigate it more deeply, just because somebody offered me a publishing contract, somebody was like, okay, fun home just came out lesbians with dad dead dads is a cool thing if you want to dig into this family secret more this could be like a financially beneficial thing for you and all i wanted to do was be an artist and i was like oh this seems like a great thing to write a graphic novel about i've always wanted to do that and i need money so that seems great and then it you know shockingly uh comics does actually not pay in this this financial kind of like fortune telling did not pan out but um but I wouldn't have gone on this story hunt and started opening all these boxes if it wasn't for this random occurrence. Mm. And if it wasn't, but then also I process things through art, which is like, I process them in slow motion on the page, having to kind of embody or relive the experience as I am drawing it. Mm. So in some ways it, it's like it brought different parts of me together that I didn't even know were lost or were kind of disorganized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it, I, it's interesting because, you know, just prior to, to recording, we were talking about kind of this, this general dilemma of uh, being adults and still struggling with probably what is a lifetime struggle with the kind of concept of embodiment, like feeling like you have a body. Um, And I guess I, I'm thinking about your, how you describe your process of drawing, almost like recreating your story through drawing that, that pulls you into kind of an embodied experience um in a way that maybe just sitting talking about it you know sitting in therapy like just it can't it can't achieve that yeah i well the way i grew up you know if you can make an assumption about my mother or the way i grew up we didn't grow up um really dealing with feelings sitting Mm -hmm. with feelings it was a very like i'll give you something to cry about kind of Mm -hmm. place Mm -hmm. Um, there was no staying in one place for long. You know, if there was a lot of black and white thinking, if something, you know, my mom got in a fight with somebody, we just never talked to them again. Mm. There was no like sitting with hard feelings, dealing with hard feelings, accountability. I never Mm. got apologized to my entire life. The first time someone apologized to me when I was 22, I like burst out crying and I didn't understand what to do. Um, but so this, this process 
of sitting with these memories and having to draw them and having to relive them because having to kind of like quantum leap or um, time travel into these moments yeah. to be like, okay, what, you know, like as a cartoonist, you're, you're populating the space. So you're like a set designer and you're also like the director and the writer and the actors. Like I had to kind of like, you know, remember every like facial expression people were making and the exact things that we said and like, you know, what was happening that day and everything that was around me and just having to like sit in that and sit in each page for like six to eight hours by myself as I kind of like mm. redid it and then drew myself in it was it was, yeah, it was different than therapy mm -hmm. in, in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, and it may, but it did, like, I did feel the things like full body feelings and then just had to like sit in those full body feelings. Cause then also I was like, well, you just have to finish this page. And if it's not now it's later, you just have to do it. Mm. Did you, did you feel at that time, like you were able to make sense of some of your kind of like physical, like the stomach problems and the, you know, were you able to, to figure anything out about that? Um, was that present for you during, during that process? I know, you know, through that process, that part was still embarrassing for me. Like I still felt like a little kid mm -hmm. that had like had an accident in class and just smelled or just was like trying to divert other kids from seeing the thing that was going on. Yeah. Um, I think it wasn't until later and having other people reflect back. Like I had to say it out loud. I knew I had to say it out loud. I didn't know to what end. And I think having people reflect back, especially during this podcast, like talking to my sisters more deeply to interview them for this podcast, like having to work with editors and a producer and like having people reflect back the amount of neglect that that has to have. Yes was the thing that made it make sense. It's kind of like one time when I was in therapy and I was talking about something that happened in my youth and I was glazing over it and my therapist got a picture of their seven-year-old and was like, this is a seven-year-old. Imagine this happening to this seven-year-old. Mm -hmm. I think it wasn't until I had that kind of moment with the podcast that it's like slowly breaking open kind of the enormity of it because also in my home, it was treated as just a thing that we just worked with. It was, you know, it was treated, everything was treated lightly. Nothing was of allowed course. to have weight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so now, I mean, even as a dog owner, it was a little bit like when you have a dog and your dog can't talk. And so then you don't know it's time to go to the vet until your dog is in like excruciating pain. Yeah. Like I was, I was a little bit like I was the dog. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, like the, the amount of child neglect, I think has really just the layers started to crack open when I was writing the book, but it wasn't until like the light of other people reflecting yes. it back yes. that the, the kind of fissures were getting bigger. And I was like, holy moly, this is, mm. I think like the weight of it and like the psychological damage and the kind of even sympathy for myself. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, is 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 whether or not because I think that sometimes we can kind of like loop around, um, you know, validation from others uh, around, you know, childhood neglect or or things that had once caused shame, but the the sort of shame then reemerges, right? And so 
to not to to realize these things and not kind of go into a place of attacking yourself again um mm. like become does that make sense like yeah. I, I like is is really at least i've found is hard to it is a hard thing to do um even if you're getting validation from the outside i think it just reopens that kind of shame place within ourselves um that resides kind of inexplicably in the body um like in in the form of symptoms or in the form of um yeah bodily experiences i mean i do i still have a, like so much shame around it yeah and just you know it went on for so many years it went on for like 10 years it went on for so many years like mm -hmm. all the different you know all that different stuff and it's you know this thing now is kind of uh acknowledging my younger self but it's a slow process yeah yeah and yeah. i mean i think honestly like part of that has also been being in 12-step groups you know like i go to therapy too but i go to a you know a 12 group for people that grew up in a particular way and having you know people who really see me who i'm very honest with mm. just like mm -hmm. reflect back gentleness mm. which is something that is a completely yes. foreign concept from the way i grew up yes and that gentle like just even like just even like eking out a little gentleness for my younger self or myself that you know was handed all of this has right. been huge yeah yeah yes yeah i mean i can i i'm glad you found that and i can really relate to um just relate my personally to that kind of idea of not really finding or accessing that gentleness for a while i think while you were talking i was i was kind of reflecting on what i think what i understand to be you know something that you and i sort of share which is just that we both were drawn to like punk scenes right you know punk mm. um at an a certain time in our lives um maybe i don't know when exactly for you but there's something about like the punk a punk ethos of like anger um and like collective anger that felt really good and really right for me at a certain time and um like righteous anger you know um about a lot of things right like systems and um past trauma and all of this and and yet I think, you know, I'm not going to categorically say, you know, I didn't have there wasn't any access to gentleness within that those scenes or, you know, of course there was. But I just I'm curious if if there's any I don't know, like if you've thought about that at all, like what your what that community, how that sort of exists in tandem or in contrast to some of what has it has um felt good about about you know 12 step um or other forms of of kind of reflecting back in gentleness i think there was definitely i guess i'll say for myself there was definitely like a feeling of my experiences being reflected back to me and validated for sure um mm -hmm. and the anger about it and the big feelings about it and the empowerment in kind of the belonging or collective belonging um but gentleness 
I'm not sure, you know? Um, no, I, it almost, I mean, I remember when I was first getting into punk in high school, you know, like hippies, I was like anti hippie. <laughs> like I had been, and I wonder if at that time, if someone had been like, just be gentle with yourself. If I, I would just, I wouldn't have had time for that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, there was, there was something. Yeah. When I think about that, I'm glad that you mentioned that. So I found punk, you know, around high school and I found, I found grunge and I found industrial and I found punk. And then after punk, I found riot girl. Yeah. And I found these like confessional zines with people talking about mental health and abuse and like ableism, sizeism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, like all these things where I was like, yes, there was something about the righteousness that didn't have space for gentleness. The righteousness felt like it was like, everything was like just a call to action. Yes. Where it was almost like, you know, like if I had a friend who had been abused in one way or another by someone in the scene, I would go straight to action of like calling, calling them out or being like, what can we do this and this? But there was not a moment of like, healing I mean I think that that was you know a part of part of it being punk and part of it being that I was a teenager totally um you know but there wasn't a lot of like just like gentle space for that person who that had happened to and maybe like I think and this is a part of 12 step is like not or that I had to learn that I didn't come out of the box knowing which is like let other people tell you what is right for them. And the thing that seems that you think is right may not be the right thing for them, even if you really believe it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, I'd be like, okay, this thing happened to you. We're going to get justice, uh, you know, yeah. or like, we're going to scream about it in a song. Whereas maybe if everyone had a pause, the person who something horrible had happened to maybe wanted something different. Yeah. Then me like blowing it up, blowing up the world blowing, for them. Yeah. Totally. But I, and I, and I mean, that was just, but it was also a thing where it was like, I had been silenced my whole life or made to feel like I didn't exist in a way. Like people keeping a secret from you is also people, it feels like it's not, it's, you don't have agency. You don't have the information, so you can't make choices. And for me, I didn't even know the entirety of who I was. Yeah. Of like, who made 50% of my DNA? Like, what, what traits did I have from, yeah, there was so much that was kept for me. And then at mm-hmm. the same time in my home, since I was treated kind of like luggage, um, I just didn't have a voice in a real way. Yeah. And so punk was a place where people, I mean, also like a bunch of angry dudes, but other people that didn't have voices, I feel like got empowered. Totally. Yeah. And got this space. And I mean, even in punk scenes, I felt disempowered. And so then like getting on the microphone and being like, we're girls in your scene and we're not here to hold your jackets. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, I just like getting to like call people out or like actually scream out loud and be rageful and like express myself that way felt important. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I can really relate to that. There's, I think I was drawn to those scenes for, for very similar reasons around kind of feeling um, or not just feeling being silenced and being quieted or blamed and, and just the kind of immense relief and newness of being able to 
see and experience people, you know, queer, weirdo, you know, people like taking up a lot of space and having a lot of anger. Um, and that's what I connected to for sure. So, um, I think that, yeah, I, I really can relate to your, to your description and it, it's not really an either, or it's sort of just like that, you know, that's, that's a big part of the purpose that served for me. And I think they're, you know, critiques of, um, of all like kind of scenes and communities that, that we could get into, but, but I, I think to, to acknowledge and honor the purpose that that kind of righteous anger served is, is important too. Um, Cause that's part of the embodiment, you know, like it's part of kind of figuring out like how to feel into your, the parts of your body that haven't been like really turned on yet. Um, or. I think that I, like there was, there was, I think that because I was so young and I was living in something very particular, there was lots of feelings I couldn't articulate, but I could express them. Like I just remember like singing along to some punk band, but do, and just crying just like crying and screaming along at a show yeah. and then like yeah. moshing. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt, it felt like you know, there was something I couldn't articulate, but there was something very like this, like primal or just kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. Like reptile brain, like need to express this. Cause otherwise I would have expressed it with, you know, self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. Or, like I need, I needed to come out some way. Yes. And yes. I'm conf reading confessional riot girl zines, I think changed my life because it made me realize that you could tell the complete truth somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I completely agree. I, when I had Cindy crab on this, um, <gasps> show a while ago and that's like the exact the exact reaction i had when i got to talk to her i was like oh my gosh you have no idea uh, i just i don't even know what to say you have no idea how much uh you doing what you did meant to me um in that way um so yeah i can i can definitely relate to that um so let's let's talk a little bit in more specifically about your about your new podcast project and 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 how it came about and what what it's been feeling like for you to to create this it's called relative fiction mm -hmm. and essentially so my book calling dr laura about the family secret it, it spans the time from like when i found out about the secret until um i told my mom i knew which took me a long time and then, um, and then a little bit about like, I found out where my dad was at the very end of the book as an epilogue, because I had been dragging my feet because I just didn't want to deal. Um, but after the book came out, a lot happened. Just mm -hmm. a lot, a lot happened. My mom gave me one star Amazon review. I found all these other family members. I found like my dad's final wife. I found brothers and sisters I didn't know I had. And I just kept finding out also like more and more secrets. I didn't know about myself and more and more secrets, like people that have been looking for me my whole life. Mm. Um, I found out more things my mom had done, which was really hard. I, and I found out things like lots of different stories about my dad. And I just, there was more to it. And I, and I wanted to write another book about it, 
Like I found a grandmother I never knew I had who had been looking for me my whole life, like through the eighties, having her daughters and herself all like look through phone books every time they were in a different hotel because they were trying to find my mom's name so they could try to find me. Um, like very amateur eighties sleuth without a lot of, um, resources. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to tell this story and I, um, and I just, I wanted like a, I just, to sell another book, it's just very, it's a laborious process. And I felt like I just wanted to like have something to like add some oomph for a publisher to be like, yes, you can write this book. Here's some money. Um, cause I just, it's too much to mm-hmm. do with $0 and zero cents. So I have a friend who works at Oregon public broadcasting, which is Portland's NPR station named Claudia. And she had come to LA to interview me about being in LA as a Portlander. And I said, Claudia, can you tell me how to pitch a story to like this American life? And I started telling her about the story and she said, well, I think we should make a whole podcast of it. <laughs> I think this is a bigger story than just that. I think we could do a whole series about this. And so Claudia and I went on this quest together. It was, it was nice to have somebody with me. You know, we interviewed and it was supposed to be, it was a pre-pandemic project. But then the pandemic happened. And so it actually ended up, we couldn't take the fun road trip we thought we were going to, to interview my entire extended family. But um, we did get like so many more interviews because the world opened up with Zoom of being able to talk to anyone. Right. Anywhere, not just be like, okay, we have enough budget to go to four different cities. Here's who we're going to talk to. It was like, there's somebody else. Let's talk. Let's try to find the original psychic and talk to everybody who worked on that street at that time. Let's wow. do it anyway. So this, so the podcast kind of picks up where the book left off and, or it, it explains what happened then. And then it kind of just goes deeper. And I think because the podcast, there's something more honest about hearing people's voices and hearing mm-hmm. people tell their own version of events. Like it, it's not as filtered through me and my That's memory right. as yeah. the graphic mm-hmm. memoir. Mm-hmm. And so it goes deeper into child neglect or it goes deeper into, um, you know, everyone's experience of having this secret kind of permeate their lives. Mm. How did that, the process of kind of moving through that production feel for you? I mean, do you, what was the impact, um, on you? It was really hard. Yeah. Um, it was very hard. I mean, this is like this, you know, like, uh, one of my friends is is trained as a therapist, but one of my best friends is like, this is like the central wound. Yeah. Your life is yeah. built around. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, so I was just marinating in it. Totally. And it was just, I mean, it's, it's so hard because it's also like, you know, people are constantly like, why do you still talk to your mom? And then my mom didn't want to be a part of the podcast, but she knew it was happening. So I'm finding out all this information about her and then still just, you know, I don't know, just still She's still there. It's just like complicating, like relationships getting complicated and more complicated. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was just hard. It was just like steeping in the hardest things. But meanwhile, there's like a global pandemic. And then meanwhile, 
I was in Portland and like the fire, the fires, like there, my house was like, one day my house was filled with smoke because there was fire in Oregon. And then I was interviewing my dad's widow for like two and a half hours about how much my dad like loved me and wanted to find me and how she just wished that she had known what was going on with me as a kid because life could have been different and I could have lived with her. And just like the most intense things all happening at once where it's like my physical home is in danger. This theoretical home is being offered. I'm learning more about my childhood home and finding out like more things about how dangerous it was, how I actually could have died from child neglect and just how much I had wished at that point for a different place. Yeah. And just having all these things happen at once was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, you know, and sometimes like, I mean, and at the same time I was, um, I was engaged and I was meeting my spouse's family who are like completely normal. Like I don't say normal, but like completely um, like functional, rational, kind adults who are like not homophobic are like so cool. And then I showed up and just hearing about all these things I was raised, I felt like a little tiny raccoon out of coming out of a trash can. Yeah. I just felt like, like some kind of like, mm-hmm. just like a, like a crummy little scruffy animal. Someone found in a trash can being like, uh, will you be my family? We <laughs> yeah. people are like, where's your mom? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> Right. Listen to the podcast. It's a long story. Yeah. It's a long story. Hmm. <laughs> what are the things do you think that helped or have been helping you kind of navigate that sense of I am actually marinating in my like core wounds right now in an ongoing way? Um, what do you think helped like tether you to your adult life? And I think that my, my chosen family, I mean, that's the thing about this podcast was it's a lot about my family of origin, my biological family, such a strong chosen family. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are in recovery with me which means like, not just that we speak the same cult language, but that like, (laughs) you know, like they've been there to see me go through it and speak really honestly about things like for years, for years and years. And so I have friends who like, you know, not only have known me for a long time and can reflect back who I am now and what they've seen me go through and like, you know, them remembering these things unfold. But also it's, there's just like a kind of like a spiritual therapeutic sort of element to my relationship with some of these people. Yeah. Where, you know, it's not just like, you know, a friend who I had drinks with and was like, can you believe how crazy this is? But people that have seen me like at, you know, different rock bottoms. Yeah. Just like speaking as honestly as I can, because I just need to. And because we, you know, exist in sort of a therapeutic, like, recovering parts of our self space. So they've seen these different parts of myself mm-hmm. and they've been able to reflect that back. And that's been really helpful. And just being able to call them, you know, when I'm in the middle of this, mm-hmm. having them remind me that, or just being able to speak frankly about it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is like a question that you may not have an answer to. And it's, I, 
I sometimes don't, as a therapist, don't have an answer to this, but I, I often have patients, you know, when they're really in, in a difficult moment of, of our work together, or they're remembering something, you know, speaking of family secrets, they're remembering or uncovering something. And when you talked about recovering parts of yourself, I often have kind of at the most painful moments, people turn to me and say like, Asher, why, why are we even doing this? You know, like really, I mean, it's clarifying. I understand myself better now, but this is like, it's painful and I don't know why I'm doing it. And, and oftentimes there's a way that we figure it out and move through it. And, you know, as with, just as a side note with any kind of trauma work there, it needs to happen at a certain pace and all of that, you know, I mean, but I guess I'm just curious for you, if you have learned anything about why it matters to recover parts of yourself that you didn't, maybe didn't even know you lost or, you know, didn't even know were, were there. I mean, Gosh, it's, I mean, I myself have asked this question, not out loud, mm. <laughs> but in like, like trying to do some kind of EMDR sort of trauma therapy, trauma hypnosis kind of things. I'm just like, <laughs> why do I have to do this? Right, right. Like, I know, I mean, I know like my lifelong work is just gonna, it's just like, well, the die was cast and here's my childhood. And so for me to be, I guess for me to be an adult and for what it means for me to be an adult is for me to be less. And I don't know. It's a big question. I have thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a lot of parts. It's like, I can't, there's like this kind of like, what, like uncover, discover, discard. Like I can't be a full adult if I am being, um, if I am being pulled by like childish directions. So like, I know, like I, I, I grew up with all these like, I'm getting, I have to go to recovery. I have to go to therapy so that I can get tools because when I was a kid, I just got a bunch of weapons. I didn't get tools. So like, as a kid, I just was like all horns and thorns. And I just was like, get away from me, you know, keeping myself safe. Mm -hmm. And if I don't do these projects, if I don't like uncover what happened and actually like reason out as an adult, like, okay, here's what really happened. Do you need those weapons anymore? Like, are those serving you? Could this, uh, like, I'm, I'm getting tools as I do this. I'm getting tools by being, learning to like acknowledge what happened, be kinder to myself as a kid, like forgive myself as a kid, be kinder, gentler. That helps me be more gentle with people as an adult, which serves me. Like I'm learning to be vulnerable on the page in therapy in recovery, and then in my life. And I didn't learn that growing up. I learned to like self-protect, hide, yep. uh, you know, be defensive, defend myself, get space, run away, like divert people gaze from what's really happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like slowly learning to undo that. And it's a long, it's a long process to like learn to get tools and then use them. And then, but it does make my life better to not approach every situation as a battle. Mm. or to not have like, and when I say childish, like I don't mean to be a jerk to kids or to myself as a kid, but to not, you know, acting things in a childish way for me is just like, 
everything's a crisis, like everything I can do to divert from my real feelings. Yes. Just, yeah. And I, I'm just really learning to sit with them and it's helpful because this shit is going to come out one way or another. Whether I want it to or not, it's going to eke out. Yeah. And so it's, for me, it's been more helpful to face it head on. I mean, truly my sister, when we talked for like two hours for the podcast, she called me afterwards and she said, oh my God, have you thought about, have you thought about getting a different job? This is really hard. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really understand how you can do this. Right. But it's not like she's not doing the same work. It's just, she's doing it, you know, with a therapist or with a meditation coach or, you sure. know, anyway, that's, so it's, mm -hmm. that's my best, that's my working answer. I love that answer. I mean, the, especially it's, it, it really resonates in terms of the way that, that these kind of defenses from childhood, just they can, they can carry us through. I mean, you really, you did, you did protect yourself all these years. Right. And it's, I think for some people and, you know, myself included, it, it, it's really hard to transition from a, you know, a kind of battle stance, right, to um, a different kind of stance in relationship to the world. And sometimes we still need that battle stance. I mean, it's, it's, um, it can be useful, but in terms of like interpersonal relationships or intimacy or, you know, things, areas like that, it gets tough to be thorny. It's lonely so I, there. It's lonely there. That's right. Yeah. It's totally lonely there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. It's, a, it's a lonely place to be, you know, thorny in that way. And it feels, it feels really nice to have all, you know, as many as I possibly can, given all the tools I have right now, it feels nice to have all the parts of me exposed and then to still be loved, mm. like to be fully seen, which is like a long process. And then to say the things out loud that I've been afraid to say my whole life, or I was told not to say or whatever about myself, and then to still be accepted and loved is the thing that feels healing. Yeah. Yeah. I am very much looking forward to your podcast. Um, and I'm so glad to kind of hear some of your insights and your willingness to share so openly with myself and the audience. Can you, can you tell folks kind of how to find out about all the things you do, like how to connect with you and yeah. Well, relative fiction, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, my, it's based off of a graphic memoir called Calling Dr. Laura which you can get your independent bookstore. Mm -hmm. um, I also have a podcast called Sagittarian Matters, which is just a, like a queer arts chat show that mm -hmm. also talks about vegan food. Um, and you can find me online. I'm Nicole J. Georges on Instagram. I don't use Twitter very much. And my website is just NicoleJGeorges.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. And yeah, it's a real, real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a lovely way to spend a morning. Oh, thank you.